Well, good morning again to all of you who are here and also all of you who are joining us on our live stream as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. That we've, and in this sermon series, we've entitled with just one word. What is that one word? Believe. believe. Because that's the main theme in the book of the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Believe, 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 believe. I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, we have just turned a corner in the narrative, and we've come to what's often called the Passion Week or the the Holy Week. And John's gospel can be pretty easily divided into two main sections. The first section, the first half of the book, the first 12 chapters is about the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Now, John cherry picks a little bit and takes, he doesn't cover everything, but he takes certain important events and he paints an artistic picture of the words and works of Jesus to reveal who he is. And there's a transition, and the second half of the book deals, the first is three and a half years, the the second half, the last 10 chapters of the book deal with just one week in Jesus' life, the Passion Week, the Holy Week. Well, today we're going to bite off a pretty big chunk of the text, finishing off chapter 12. If you're out last weekend, I'd highly recommend go back and listen to that on our podcast, on our YouTube channel. That's where we covered the beginning of this week, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He's been welcomed by this crowd of enthusiastic people waving palm branches, a symbol of nationalistic pride for Israel, hailing him as king, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means Lord, save us now. They've welcomed him as king, but Jesus has just begun to reveal that he's not quite what they were expecting. He's a different kind of king. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a mighty stallion, nor what did he use? An adolescent donkey. He didn't come in with a show of power, but rather a demonstration of humility. He will not crush his enemies, but he will be crushed by his enemies. He won't wear a crown of jewels. Now, what will he wear? a crown of thorns. He didn't come to defeat Rome, but rather to defeat sin and death and Satan himself. King Jesus won't sit on a throne yet, but instead will hang on a Roman cross. He's a different kind of king. And when the Greeks begin to seek him out, they come to the disciples and say, we want to see Jesus. Can we see Jesus? That's in chapter 12, verse 20. The Greeks come and seek him out, and that signals to Jesus something very important. It signals to Jesus, it's time. It's time. The hour has come. All leading up to this, he said, the hour is not yet, my my hour is not yet come. They couldn't arrest him because his hour hadn't come. It's over and over and over again. But this is the first time in the text that Jesus says, my hour has come. It's here. It's time. It's time for me to be the savior of the world. Jesus knows that it's time for him to be glorified. But he also knows that the pathway to glory must first lead through Gethsemane and Golgotha and the grave. In other words, crucifixion precedes resurrection. Jesus understands that he must die. That's why he came. And he uses the analogy of a grain of wheat. Like a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
so is my life. I'm like this grain of wheat, and when I die, I'll become the first fruits of something much bigger. I'll become the first fruits of resurrection. I'm going to multiply life through my death, which is where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 12. And so if you would, please stand with me as we read together our text this morning that begins in verse 27. And our scripture reading is going to be a little bit different this morning because you have an assignment, okay? You have an assignment. There's going to be a pop quiz afterwards. You have an assignment, and that assignment is this. I want you to count how many times some variation of the word believe appears in our passage. Kids, you've got this? You got this? Okay, count how many times the word believe shows up. Let's read together, beginning in verse 27 with Jesus talking. He says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. While, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, pop quiz time. How many times did some variation of the word believe show up in our passage? Say it out loud. Yes, perfect. Good job, Daniel. 
Eight times, eight times. Now, does anyone want to venture a guess as to the main theme of our passage this morning? <laughs> Belief. <laughs> Belief, good. Proud of you, Spencer. Belief is the main theme. This passage, passage covers the last public appeal of Jesus to the masses, the crowds in Jerusalem. From here on out, Jesus is primarily going to speak only to his disciples with just a couple exceptions, the high priest and Pilate, okay? But he's done speaking with the crowds after this. These are his last words to the crowds. And last words, my friends, are important words. When someone knows they're going to die, they choose their words wisely. They choose their words carefully. They're very intentional with what they say. And Jesus chooses to use his last words to the crowds to make one final appeal to them. Won't you please believe? Won't you please believe? Would you accept the light while you still have it? There's a lot to cover in this rather lengthy section of Scripture. We won't have time to fully unpack every intricate detail of it. But as Jesus makes this last appeal, we're going to discover two common stumbling blocks to belief. Two things that often get in the way of wholehearted faith in Jesus. Stumbling blocks that everyone in this room, myself included, are prone to trip over. Two things that make it difficult for the human heart to believe. You, you might even call yourself a believer this morning, but I do too, but I also call myself an unbeliever. You know why? Because there's still corners of my heart where I struggle to believe. There's still corners of my heart that, that God is still shining the light into and, and drawing me to himself. And, and, and the process of growing as a disciple of Jesus is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life, in every corner of your heart. And oftentimes, we know more up here than we believe down here. That's just the reality. We're all unbelievers, all of us, even if you say you believe in Jesus. So this passage is for us, and I want us to discover two important and common stumbling blocks in their culture and ours. But I also want to uncover two reasons to believe anyway that Jesus gives us. So say this outline out loud with me. Two stumbling blocks to belief and two reasons to believe anyway. That's where we're going this morning. But before we dive in, let's pause and talk with God, shall we? Father, this is your word. It's been given to us to comfort us, but also to convict us. And Father, we ask that it would do both this morning. Father, you know I'm weak and weary this morning, and I pray that you would use me in spite of myself to be faithful to your word, to, to simply say what it says, and may your word do its work through the power of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people. Change us, grow us, convict us, comfort us, draw us to yourself. Move us from unbelief to belief in another corner of our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. If you knew for certain, today's Sunday, if you knew for certain that on Friday you were going to die an agonizing death, how would you feel right now? Five days, that's all you've got left. How would you feel? Would your soul be a bit troubled? 
likely. Mine would be. Mine would be. And Jesus, being fully human, God in the flesh, but fully human, is trouble. How do we know? Our text tells us in verse 27 where we dive in today. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know, the gravity of what is about to happen is beginning to sink in with Jesus here on an emotional level. And he says in front of the crowds, now is my soul troubled. He says this out loud, audibly. The crowds are listening to him. And and it's because this wave of gut-wrenching emotion has hit Jesus. He begins, uh, and he begins to deliberate out loud what he's going to do with it. He, He asks out loud in front of the crowd, should I ask the Father to save me from this hour? But as soon as he asks the question, he dismisses it audibly as well. No, it's for this very purpose that I've come to this hour. I've come to die. I've come not to be served, but to serve. I've come not to preserve my life, but to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come not to wear a crown, but to bear a cross. I've come not to do my will, but I've come to do the will of my Father. Which is why Jesus says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Your will be done, not mine. It's about you, Father, not me. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is an incredible detail in the text. I want to just pause on it for a moment. Did you catch it? an audible voice from God the Father comes down from heaven. God the Father is speaking out loud to God the Son in front of a crowd. This is incredible. This is incredible. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then the Father literally talks back to him and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Audibly. And the crowd that's around Jesus is rather befuddled here. And, and they, they say, that, was, that must have been thunder. Or, or some of them maybe audibly understood what was said. And so, well, well, an angel must be talking to him. Well, some, they had to audibly understand the voice because the, John records it here exactly what was said. It was audible. And Jesus says, hey, I'm not the one who needed to hear this. This was for you all. (laughs) I'm already in perfect communion with my father. I already know what he's saying to me. He spoke audibly for you, for you. Now, have you ever had somebody tell you? You know, I I believe in God, but, you know, it's just hard. (laughs) You know, but if God were to speak to me out loud in an audible voice, then I'd believe in him. Have you ever heard that? Well, this is proof that that might not be the case. This crowd just dismisses the audible voice of God the Father as thunder and goes on with their lives. Jesus goes on to say in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death 
he was going to die. Right here, Jesus starts spelling out exactly what's going to happen. Four things. One, he's going to be lifted up from the earth. That's figurative language for being lifted up on a cross. Figurative language from, for death. Two, Satan will be cast out and defeated. Although the cross looks like Jesus' victory, or not Jesus' victory, Satan's victory, it's actually his defeat. Number three, judgment will come to the world for those who don't believe. And fourth thing Jesus makes clear here is this, he will draw all people to himself. Now, time out. This does not mean that all people will be saved, every individual, okay? It does not mean everyone comes to faith in Jesus. All people here does not mean all individuals without exception. What it does mean is all people without distinction. In other words, all nations, people from all nations are going to put their faith in Jesus. Jesus will draw all people peoples to himself. He's not just the savior of the nation of Israel. He's the savior for who? The nations, the world. And if you're not Jewish this morning, you should be saying, thank God. Thank God. But keep in mind who Jesus is primarily talking to. Who's the, who, what's the ethnicity of the crowd around him? We know there's some Greeks in there from early in the chapter, but what's the predominant ethnicity of the crowd? They're Israelites. They're Jewish. And what's their expectation? What kind of king do they think Jesus is? What are they expecting him to do now that he's come into Jerusalem? Yeah, overthrow the Roman government. Establish his kingdom on earth. Fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies in their completion right now. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus is a different kind of king. He begins talking about death. He begins talking about saving the nation, drawing all people to himself, all ethnicities to himself. Not what the crowd was expecting. So how do they respond? Let's look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, you know, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? They understood what he said, what he meant by that. How can you say that the son of man's going to die? Who is this son of man that you're talking about, Jesus? Time out here. This doesn't match our preconceived notions. This is outside of the box for us. The Messiah must die? You must be talking about a different son of man, Jesus. Because if that's you, nope, no thank you, we're out. We're just going to wait for another Messiah, a different Messiah. We'll take that other one, please. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Well, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus responds to them and says, I know this isn't what you were expecting. I know that, but, but would you please trust me? Would you trust that I, like I've said so often before, I'm the light of the world. 
I'm the one who helps you see clearly. You're still in darkness, but I'm the light. And you don't want to be walking in darkness. You want to be walking in light. You want to see things clearly. Would you please just believe anyway so that the darkness doesn't overtake you? And right here, we see the first of two stumbling blocks to belief in Jesus. The first of two stumbling blocks, and that's this. Say this out loud with me. Belief in Jesus is difficult when he doesn't meet our expectations. Belief in Jesus is difficult when he doesn't meet our expectations. And you all are, I'm assuming most of you at least, are Americans, which means you're a consumer. You've been trained to be a consumer. And so this is an important and very pertinent stumbling block in our own culture. Because we oftentimes approach Jesus as the solver of our problems rather than the savior from our sins. And there's a difference. If we're approaching Jesus from a consumeristic mindset as a solver of our problems to make our life better, we're going to face disappointment and disillusionment because that's not why he came. That's not why he came. Jesus didn't come to cater to our self-centered whims and make our lives better. He came to serve our greatest need, forgiveness of sins and eternal life forevermore. He came not to give us our best life now, but to give us our best life later. And when life doesn't turn out the way we think it should, Jesus appeals to us here, won't you please believe anyway? Won't you please believe anyway? Won't you trust that I'm the light of the world? Won't you trust that without me you won't be able to see things clearly? Won't you trust that you don't already have it all figured out? Won't you trust that I'm in control even when you aren't? Won't you believe in me even when I don't always match your preconceived expectations? Glory is coming. Eternal life is coming. It's just not now. It's not yet. Self-sacrifice, death, self-denial, crucifixion is now. Glory is later. But wait for it, wait for it. It's coming. Won't you please believe anyway? Belief is difficult when Jesus doesn't match our expectations. And we're all susceptible to unbelief when life doesn't go our way. We really are, especially as American consumers. It's easy for us to get in that mode of, of treating, treating Jesus more like a genie in a bottle than as a savior from sins. More like a vending machine that if we punch the right buttons of church attendance and moral living, we're going to get rewarded in some way in some twisted transactional relationship with God. No, that's not how it works. We're susceptible to that here in America. But belief is difficult when Jesus doesn't match our expectations. When the troubling health diagnosis comes, when the relationship that we so hope for is non-existent or falls apart, when our dream job never becomes a reality, when things simply don't go our way, it's tempting as American consumers to stumble over this stumbling block that we learn about here when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. But there's another common stumbling block that's presented in our text this morning that we're going to shift gears and get to next as we pick up the text 
in the middle of verse 36. Read with me. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though they had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, this section is rather confusing, but basically John is using two quotes from the prophet Isaiah to illustrate and show us, as the readers of his, of his gospel, to show us that we should not be surprised when people don't believe. This shouldn't catch us off guard when people reject Jesus. Why? Why? Two reasons. One, quite literally, so that these prophecies would be fulfilled. But two, because God hasn't softened the hearts of unbelievers. God hasn't softened their hearts and given them the capability to believe. John points this out in verse 39. He points out that they could not believe. Now, this is tough for us to hear because we like to emphasize our control over things more than God's sovereignty. And we could take the next three hours and go, go down a theological rabbit hole here. Um, but for the sake of the Bachmans, um, in the front row, we won't do that. Um, what we will do is, is just touch on this and move on. And if you want more resources to process this, come talk to me later. I'll give them to you. But for the theologically curious, I want to expound a little bit on the tension between human freedom and divine sovereignty here by quoting somebody a lot smarter than me and a much better theologian. His name is D.A. Carson. He says three things in his commentary on this passage. The first one is this. God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that humans aren't responsible for their choices. And there's a tension here. And both are true. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. And, and, and that's a tension that's held all through scripture and throughout history, church history, people have tried to solve that tension by overemphasizing God's sovereignty and saying human freedom doesn't exist and that falls into error or underemphasizing God's sovereignty, elevating human freedom and, and placing all the emphasis there, that falls into error, error as well. We have to hold both in tension. And some of you might say here and object, probably because you're American. <laughs> Wait a minute. This doesn't seem fair. This does not seem fair that God has softened some people's hearts and not others. It's not fair that some people can't believe. To which D.A. Carson would tell you, so I don't get hate mail later. You can text D.A. Carson instead. <laughs> this is his second thought. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. See that tension between sovereignty and human freedom? That statement holds it well. 
We're not innocent in these matters. There's, there's human responsibility. All of our hearts would be hard if it weren't for the intervening grace of God. From birth, the natural bent of our heart is to run headlong towards hell and thumb our noses at the God of the universe. That's in all of us. And if it weren't for the intervening grace of God to scoop down and grab some of us from hellfire, we would all be there. We would all be there, which means what? If you believe in Jesus this morning, you have been given incredible and amazing grace from God. He has rescued you. He's opened your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. He has quickened your heart to believe. And that's a gift. It's a gift. And we should be very, very thankful for it. Thought number three from D.A. Carson. God's sovereignty in these matters can also be a cause for hope. For if he is not sovereign in these areas, there is little point in petitioning him for help. Well, if he is sovereign... The anguished pleas of the prophets and of believers throughout history, the history of the church, make sense. God's sovereignty in these matters of belief and salvation are actually cause for hope and should motivate us to pray. Asking him to help us to continue believing, but also pleading with God for the hearts of men and women, boys and girls all around us every day who have yet to believe. God is sovereign. I love how one person once said it, and I forget who it is. I'll think of it later. They said, evangelism isn't so much talking with men about God as it is talking with God about men. You still need to talk to your neighbors. But it's God who changes hearts. It's God who changes hearts. God just gives us the privilege of being at the right place at the right time as his representatives as he draws all people to himself. All right. Theological rabbit hole done. Let's jump back in with verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 42. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These are indicting words, aren't they? There were many authorities who believed in Jesus, saw the signs, believed in him, but they were scared. They were scared to put themselves out there publicly. They were scared to confess it. They were more concerned about what others thought about them than what God thought about them. They were more concerned about losing their own position of authority, losing their own glory, rather than being partakers in God's glory. And this leads us to the second stumbling block to belief that's presented by John in our passage, and that's this. Read it out loud with me. Belief in Jesus is difficult when he isn't popular with the crowd. Belief in Jesus is difficult when he isn't popular with the crowd. When the majority rejects him, which was the case in Jesus' day. It's been the case throughout history since, and it's the case today as well. Well, why is it so hard? 
to believe when Jesus isn't popular. When belief in Jesus cuts across the grain of culture, when, when the sexual ethic of Christianity isn't what our culture holds, when, when things about Jesus, the exclusivity of his claims come across as hateful and bigoted, then how could you say there's such thing as exclusive truth? You narrow-minded Christian. Why is it difficult to keep on believing? when the crowd goes the other direction, following the whims of culture. Well, here's why. It's because by nature we are people pleasers. Guilty as charged. Some of us to more extent than the other, I'm to the more extent, okay? I am by nature a people pleaser, but that's in all of our hearts. All of us are approval seekers. We don't want to be rejected. Our hearts long to be accepted, to be loved, to be seen for exactly who we are and be embraced anyway. That's in all of our hearts. Really, I think it's a God-given longing that's meant to be found in God himself. And that's why we need to take the truth of the gospel and apply it right here. And what do we learn in the gospel? Though we're more messed up than we think we are, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever dare hope, my friends. And when God looks at us, he smiles, a proud fatherly smile. There's no version of yourself that God's going to delight in more than who you are right now in Christ. Your acceptance is not predicated on your obedience. You are fully accepted in Jesus Christ, fully loved, and God smiles on you with a proud fatherly smile and says, you're mine. You're mine. You're fully approved. You're fully loved. You're fully accepted already. That's what our hearts need to hear. That's what our hearts need to embrace. That's what our hearts need to believe. And that belief moves us from caring about what other people think and caring more about what God thinks. That belief in God's love is what changes us from the inside out. It it makes the opinion of the capricious crowds less important. And it elevates what God thinks. It makes our own glory and our own popularity and our own standing with the cool kids less important. And it makes partaking in God's glory more important. That's what we begin to treasure when we begin to, when when it sinks into our hearts that we are fully loved and accepted in Christ. All of us know it up here but there's still corners of our heart that doesn't really believe it. And that's when the voices of the crowds start wiggling in there and we stumble in unbelief. His approval must become more important, more dear, more precious to us than the capricious endorsement of others. And when it does, we'll keep on believing when the popular crowd goes the other direction or abandons and ridicules our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, abandons and ridicules us. Yes, belief in difficult Belief in Jesus is difficult when he isn't popular, but my friends, let me encourage you this morning to believe anyway. Believe anyway. Why? 
Well, Jesus is about to spell that out plain and clear in the last section of his last public appeal, starting with verse 44. Why should we believe anyway? Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I'm not making this up, Jesus is saying. This is coming from God the Father. And I know that his commandment is what? Eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And the public ministry of Jesus is over. Last words are important words. And Jesus in these, these, this final paragraph has given us two reasons to believe anyway. In spite of the difficulty, in spite of the difficulty when he doesn't match our expectations, in spite of the difficulty when he isn't popular with the crowd. Here's the first reason. Say this out loud. To believe in Jesus is to embrace God himself. To believe in Jesus is to embrace God himself. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. To believe in Jesus, God the Son, is also to embrace God the Father. You can't separate the two because what Jesus, God the Son, has been saying about judgment for those who don't believe in him and about eternal life for those who do comes directly from God the Father. To believe in Jesus is to embrace God the Father. Believe anyway. And here's reason number two that Jesus gives in this final paragraph. If I'm just going to summarize it, it's this. Say it out loud with me. To believe in Jesus means that you've been rescued from God's judgment and been given the wonderful gift of eternal life. You've passed from life to death. Other way around. From death to life. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want you to go out of here disillusioned, okay? No, no. <laughs> This is good news. Jesus has died in our place on our behalf instead of us so that we could be fully loved and fully accepted so that we could have the eternal and free gift of everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, Jew, Gentile, Boy, girl, man, woman, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It doesn't get more clear than that. Words from John chapter 3, which we've already covered. My friends, the spiritual math is quite simple. And it's this. Jesus, say this out loud. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
And those of you who are good with equations can flip this around and we could say it the other way. Everything minus Jesus is nothing. Say that out loud. Everything minus Jesus is nothing. What good is it if someone were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Everything minus Jesus, my friends, is nothing. When life doesn't go as expected, when the popular crowd goes the other way and leaves you in the dust, my friends, believe anyway. Believe anyway. It's worth it. Glory's coming. In the words of professional songwriter and amateur theologian Steve Perry, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. The next scene in John's gospel is going to be on a Thursday night. That day, thousands, perhaps millions of lambs without spot, without blemish have been sacrificed, commemorating the event in the Old Testament when God passed over Israel and put his judgment on the Egyptians. Lambs died in their place on their behalf instead of them. And the next day, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world once and for all time, will be sacrificed. But on that night, that Thursday night, Jesus would gather in an upper room with his disciples, and we'll be there next, next week. John chapter 13, the scene of Jesus washing his disciples' feet right before that meal. During that meal, Jesus would take two elements of that traditional Um, Passover feast, the unleavened bread and a cup of wine. And he would reinterpret them. He would talk about that bread and he he would talk about how that was symbolic of his, as he broke it, his body that would be broken for his disciples. He would take the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, remember my blood shed for your sin. And then he said something also interesting. He said, I will not drink of this cup again until I come in my kingdom. It's an already not yet thing. He's come. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't come in its consummation. But my friends, it will. It will. Crucifixion is now, but glory is coming. Resurrection is coming. Jesus is coming back and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Jesus is coming back and he will make all the sad things come untrue. Jesus is coming back and he will mend everything that's broken. He will bring justice where there's injustice. He'll bring beauty where there's ugliness. And we will have a feast and on that day we will share a cup with our king. And so for two millennia now, Christians, believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus have gathered much like we are here and have remembered the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. But we have also gathered to look forward to we will share this cup in the kingdom with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who won't come on a donkey then. He's coming on a mighty war horse. That day is coming soon. So would you, you each have one of these by your feet. If you're a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you to tear off the side that has the the bread. 
My friends, this bread is representative of the broken body of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our sins. Broken for you and for, for, for me on the cross. Eat it in remembrance of what he's done. And after dinner, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Remember what I've done for you as you drink this cup. And look forward to the day when we'll drink it again with Jesus in his kingdom. As the band comes back up, we're going to close in a song here in a second. But let's pray and thank God for Jesus, because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Father, thank you. Thank you for the chance to remember what you've done for us today so that we continue to believe, continue to put our faith and trust in you even when life doesn't make sense and even when it's unpopular. Thank you for the chance to look forward to the day when you will make all things new. May that day come soon. In the meantime, help us to believe and to keep on believing. Give us the grace that we continually need day by day week by week, month by month, to believe. And it's in Christ's name we pray.